If you've been told to pull up your socks, then make sure it's a pair of TNT socks. The TNT shop is now open at tntradio.live. Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. This is World Stage, exposing the tyrannies and exploring our power with deep dives into history, current events, dangerous trends, and the nature of reality. Before I introduce my guest, I want to read something from one of my favorite books. I've read this book three or four times. It's The Essential Crazy Wisdom by Wes Scoop Nisker, N-I-S-K-E-R. And this is from the introduction. I first encountered the phrase crazy wisdom in my study of Buddhism and Taoism, where it is sometimes used to describe the insights and teaching methods of the most radical masters of the way. In my studies, I also discovered a profound similarity between the crazy wisdom of the Asian sages and that of certain Western philosophers, artists, and scientists, in particular the existentialists, the Dadaists, the romantic and beat poets, quantum physicists, and evolutionary biologists. As I continued to explore the similarities, a pattern began to emerge that eventually became the fabric of the essential crazy wisdom. And I'm reading from the introduction. One more big paragraph. This is the author writing. I consider this book an excellent primer for survival in the new millennium we have entered. This came out in late 2001. It offers the relatively timeless understanding and advice of clowns, jesters, tricksters, and holy fools. And hopefully they will be able to inspire a little more crazy wisdom in your own life. If I had to summarize their message, although many would deny that they even have one, it is that we are all stuck together in this moment of history, and the most appropriate response to each other is compassion and a sharing of laughter. After all, we really don't have a clue as to what is going on here, if anything, and most likely, we aren't really in charge of very much of it anyway, and in the end, the joke seems to be on all of us. Knowing that, we can relax a little and dispense with any blame. So far, as human beings, our greatest gifts, aside from the ability to make good painkillers, are our feelings of love and senses of humor. This book is a tribute to those qualities as they have so generously appeared in members of our species to date. Again, that's The Essential Crazy Wisdom by Wes Scoop, in quotes, Nisker, N-I-S-K-E-R. With me this hour is Edward Dodge, an independent researcher and writer with two degrees from Cornell University, one in industrial and labor relations and a master's in business administration. His first book, A History of the Goddess, From the Ice Age to the Bible, published by Trine Day Publishing, for which I do the marketing, explores the long and continuous traditions of goddess worship throughout time. Ed has spent his career in IT and renewable energy and has blogged about clean energy, carbon, and cannabis history. And the one of his sites, two of his sites, lostgoddess.io and also edwarddodge.substack.com. And he is my friend, Ed. Thank you very much for joining me again. How are you today? 
Hey, Bruce, it's great to be here. You know, I love that quote. Um, great to be here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, always wonderful to talk to you, uh, my friend. And um, I just got and thank you to the audience for listening. Uh, you know, peace and love to everybody. Uh, but I love that quote. You could have been like taken right out of my own brain. What that guy was saying about uh, the crazy wisdom and no one knows what's going on. Um, you know, it reminds me of I want to add a, an additional quote. I think it fits perfectly into it from uh, the immortal Hunter S. Thompson. When the going gets weird, the weird go pro. And uh, the going has definitely been getting weird as we go into the space age. And uh, we need some of the weird folks to come out of the woodwork, you know, and go pro a little bit. Well, that book's <laughs> called the, yeah, the essential crazy wisdom. And we could talk an hour just about Thompson's quote. We're not going to, but no. <laughs> there is, there is there, what a, what a profound intuition he had with saying that, you know, when the going gets weird, the weird go pro. Because there's a, there's a lot of sanity in throwing off and throwing away received dogma. Because it just, you know, if anything could happen at any moment, this is life during wartime. You know, that's the whole premise of um, the joy of warfare. You know, veterans come back and they say, you know, in, in history, maybe not so much lately, but in history, it was, I miss the conditions of battle because you never knew what was going to happen. It's kind of like childhood. You know, life is very, very urgent. It's all opportunity. You don't know if you're going to find a loaf of bread that you need or you're going to step on a landmine. And all you have is the loyalty and the love and your commitment to your comrades who are shoulder to shoulder. And we couldn't be in weirder times. And to try to rein this in. Well, what are your thoughts about that? And then we'll rein it well, into I think, your I mean, I think, in your I think latest. Being in weird <laughs> times is really the essence, and it's really the essence of my, of my work, which is that, you know, we've we've transitioned from the Iron Age into the Space Age, and you know, it's a transit that's going to take. We're only halfway through, I, I guess. I estimate, and it's like you know, centuries long. Two hundred fifty years into it, probably got another two hundred fifty years to go, and nobody knows what's coming. And all the old structures are failing. All the old religious institutions and religious authority that's from the Iron Age is all, is we're in the process of breaking down. It's not dead yet, but we're watching it break down. But the Enlightenment thinkers that are trying to replace it aren't any better. And they've two got problems two, too. They do. Two questions. By space age, is it your, are you picturing, you know, humankind leaving Earth? If, you know, or die trying. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm all for a Star Trek, Star Wars future for sure. And well, or, or, is, or, or is your point at the, incredible technology that we have and that is is maybe going to subsume us is that what you're mostly alluding well to? i mean like the iron age was like literally like you know a you know a time period in history defined by like material progress and so that lasts from like a thousand bc to the industrial revolution and now we haven't really necessarily come up with a name for this new age we're in but i've been calling it the space mm -hmm. age for lack of a better name called the plastics mm -hmm. age if you want um mm -hmm. um but yeah, like we we have we have transitioned. We and then in the twenty first century, there's not even a pretense we're living in the old days anymore. Um, but like nobody knows what's coming, and like the leadership doesn't right. know what's coming with all the technology that's still changing, all the artificial intelligence and synthetic biology, and all the stuff that's still coming down the pike um, in terms of technology shifts. Nobody knows, and our and leadership when you recounted, plans to know, but they don't know. Yeah, but but also when you recounted that the old. Traditional things aren't working. Any things are are breaking down. Do you see that happening naturally? Because frankly, I see it by design by a ruling class that want to 
restrict us, constrict us, sicken us, and kill off as many of us as they might be able to. Yeah, no, there is a, you know, a, a, a there is definitely a, a globalist ruling class that has an agenda. There's no question about it. Um, mm. I mean, there's always been a, a ruling class and they've always had agendas, right? Um, mm. But we have one that's a globalist ruling class today with very mm. specific enlightenment-based ideals that are hostile to religion, right? They're hostile to religion, hostile to traditional religion. Uh, they believe in sec- centralized technocratic control. They want they 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 finally believe big government is, is good government and that more mm. more governance is better. Um, and when they get it wrong, they just like memory hole it and move on to the next thing and still want control. Um, and one so, of the one, one of the great points of your book, A History of the Goddess, is the it 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 walks one into appreciating and it, tell me if you agree with this. A re-enchantment, a, re- a reawakening, a rediscovery of what humanity knew for eons when we lived on the earth, close to the earth, growing the earth, feeding the earth, fertilizing, and burying our dead in the earth, handling it. There were mystical, magical powers, and it, discri- it justifies or explains why a sense of the spiritual or the mystical is ubiquitous part and parcel of human experience until the Enlightenment, as you say. What are your exactly. thoughts about that? Uh, okay, yeah. No, it's exactly what I think the Enlightenment is getting wrong, is that the hostility to all spirituality, this sort of a priori presupposition that anything spiritual, anything mystical is not true, and that the only thing that is true is mm-hmm. science, and science is purely materialism by by definition. So from mm-hmm. a science perspective, the only things that are, tr- that are quote-unquote true with a capital T are things that you can prove materially and prove, right. you know, within the context of scientific method. But that leaves out everything that's non-material and lots of things in life are non-material. And we know that now in quantum mechanics and all. And as you get to the cutting edge of science, you see them running into this and running into this fact that they can't explain everything materially. Um, mm-hmm. and it's not just quantum mechanics, it's a bunch of stuff. Um, and that, but then the mystics are like, we've been talking about this stuff forever. They, they can't explain consciousness. That's the, that's the main one that the mystics have answers to all this stuff, but right. the enlightenment folks refuse to listen. Well, you know, and that's why the uh, preamble for my show world stage, you know, exploring this, exposing that, this, that, and the other thing, and the nature of reality is in there so that I can welcome and invite conversations like this because of the solace it personally gives me. Otherwise I would just be, you know, manipulating viewers and listeners by alluding to it, but also the robust enrichment and empowerment. I'll just mention Ralph Waldo Emerson as an author people could go to, in addition to that book, The Essential Crazy Wisdom, and invite your final thoughts about that before I ask you about your book, please. Well, yeah, I mean, there's an endless, there's a there's a continuous lineage of mystics and poets that have been talking about this stuff forever. When you dive into these questions, you realize people have been asking these questions for a long time, and it's a running conversation we've been having for 50,000 years, I think religion and spirituality is. So, yeah, Amen. you can, Ralph Waldo Emerson is a great example, but there's loads of them, you know, and you can pick any yeah. moment in history, and you're going to find yeah. people like that that have a mystical perspective. Yeah. And insight and and uh, things that make you go, wow, you know, not just stone teenagers. A history of the goddess from the Ice Age to the Bible. Let's do a few minutes just to for you to teach, you know, people who've never heard of you or your book before. There it is. <laughs> um, the, the the premise. Why'd you what why'd you write it and what do we get out of it? Yeah. So the whole idea was that um it's a really it's a book where I'm exploring, kind of learning stuff as I was writing it. But I dove into the whole story of Asherah, 
who is this Canaanite goddess in the Old Testament that modern day scholars are all saying was the wife of God. And I was totally flabbergasted by this whole concept that God could even have a wife that I started digging in. Like, I'm not a super religious person. I went to church as a kid, but I basically deconstructed at 18 and haven't really called myself a Christian ever since. So I grew up reading the Bible, but not in any serious way. So this was like my first time in 20 years to like dive back into the biblical text, but looking at it from a completely different perspective and using the modern digital technology tools to do the research. Like, I'm not a Hebrew scholar or anything, but with modern digital tools, we can do Hebrew word searches and things. And it's really quite amazing. So I started digging into this story of Asherah trying to figure out what was going on. I was also looking at at the story of cannabis. It was actually also, it was originally an expression of cannabis in the Bible and trying to figure out how, because the premise is that cannabis is mentioned a bunch of times, but it's mistranslated so we don't see it. And the most important reference is that it's an ingredient in Moses' holy anointing oil in Exodus 30, 23. And then my, my theory was that, all right, cannabis was sacred at one point, and then it gets thrown out at a later point. I was trying to figure out what point it got thrown out. And then I stumbled into the story of Asherah. And they're saying she's like an Israelite mother goddess. And I'm like, what the heck? And I figured, well, maybe they got thrown out together. Maybe the cannabis and the goddess got thrown out together. And it turns out to be that's exactly what it was. And the long story short is that historically, the first temple Israelites, so the historical Israel that actually existed from 1000 BC when King David took Jerusalem to when it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. And that's a real history was not monotheistic. It's like totally pagan. They had a total pantheon of the gods. The God of the Bible was still two separate gods. El and Yahweh were still two separate gods. They hadn't been merged together to the God of the Bible that we know as Elohim. They have a full pantheon. So they've got a mother goddess, Asherah, and the other goddesses, Astarte and Anat. And then we're seeing that they're having an argument about it. We're seeing that throughout the first temple period, the Hebrew prophets are coming on and saying, stop worshiping these goddesses. They're also saying, stop doing the child sacrifice, which was a parallel issue. The sacrifices weren't to the goddesses, but they were arguing about that too. So they're arguing about, and all these goddess traditions, it's it's nature-based and it's, they call them fertility religions, but they're really life, death, and renewal traditions because there's much about death is there about life. And they celebrate sexuality and the sex and drugs is all there and temple prostitution is all a part of it. And this was totally normative in the ancient world, um, 100% normative. But you're seeing that they're having a reformation. The followers of Yahweh, the Hebrew prophets that we know, Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they're like the social justice warriors of their day. And they're like these radical reformers and they're kicking in these new ideas. And one thing they're trying to get rid of is these old mother goddess worship. And that part, you know, I don't like so much because it's deeply misogynistic, but we see the Greeks as well are also having a reformation where they're also reforming the goddesses. And the broader social context is of a transition, a slow transition across the ancient Near East where they're transitioning from tribal matriarchal family structures that had been the default of humanity. The indigenous default was family structures built around the women, built around the mothers. This had, it continues in the indigenous world in the modern day. Um, but once kingship comes in in the Bronze Age, like 5,000 years ago, is when we have permanent kingship, like 3,000 BC. They impose themselves as like a new ruling class on top of the indigenous people. And this is where we start to get class-based society. And this is where patriarchy follows kingship and male dominance of women, because women become the first slaves. They kill the men, but they enslave the women. And so this is when women start to get subverted after 3000, in the second and third millennium BC. And then as we, you go into the Bronze Age collapse, 1200 BC is a total meltdown of civilization. This is when the Exodus and the, Iliad and the Trojan War all happen. And then as we come out into the Iron Age in the first millennium BC, it seems like the curtain just drops. 
on the women. And whatever last vestiges they had of their independence and authority and power just gets chucked out in the Greeks and the Hebrews. And by the time we get to 500 BC, it's like it's game, set, match. Like it's over for the women in terms of having kind of independence. Thank you, edwarddodge.substack.com, talking about some of what's in his book, A History of the Goddess from the Ice Age to the Bible. And now here is important information from today's news talk, TNT. TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while ex exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done, and in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. A better business tip from TNT Radio. News Talk Radio listeners are some of the most active and involved listeners of any format. TNT Radio listeners rely on TNT Radio often as their primary source of information. They trust TNT Radio and are highly engaged with the content. If you'd like more information about advertising on TNT Radio, simply fill out your details on our contact page and we'll be in touch. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. A hoax about carbon dioxide in the climate has caused a global energy and economic disaster. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. With me is Ed Dodge talking about his book, A History of the Goddess. And you, we, we had talked about um, a presentation you gave last night. But before we get into that, what did you... Uh, bring up on the break that you wanted to definitely emphasize oh i mean yeah i, I was just gonna say i had this presentation i did the other day um okay but uh well, then, I'll, then, I'll say if you want to ask me any questions first you can, you can yeah that. yeah because to pick up on where we left off which was the eradication for the most part in the uh, ancient world of an appreciation of the divine uh, mother or the divine women, the women, the women gods, the goddesses, and also matriarchal society. What did we lose? What did humanity lose with the suppression of equal appreciation and value of the matriarchy? And what are we enduring or suffering? What are the ills of the kingship and the patriarchal domination from uh, the time you described? Yeah, you know, and I think. In addition to that, I want to make a point that is we look at history as like, you know, linear progress. And we have sort of a default assumption that whatever came later is better than whatever came before. And it's, you know, we're not losing anything along the way, as opposed to looking at these transitions in history as gaining something while you're also losing something. And that maybe you need to go back and, and you know, and, and look around at what had been left behind. Hold on one second. My dog is for Because in Ed's book. He makes a beautiful case of describing the the very humanizing values 
and and how beautiful and harmonious uh, that you found Ed. Many of the societies were when women were at least considered having equal rights, let alone when they were the 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 dominant or the more influential uh, sex. Flush that yeah, out no, for me, please. Yeah. Yeah. So like, there has been. There was a, a narrative. I mean, I'm not the first person to talk about this stuff. This narrative has been sort of developing for a century now. And a lot of the earlier narratives were kind of naive and, and like got a lot of criticism in academic circles of like sort of utopian Shangri-La world when the women ran everything. I don't think it was utopia or Shangri-La. I think they're just indigenous people. But we do see is that in a society where where you build your families around the women, a couple of very specific things happen. One is um, there's two there's two aspects to it that are important. One is tracking your family lines through the mother, not through the father, and how you structure your marriages. And so when you track your mother line, family lines through the mother instead of the father, well then the, the the seed donor is anonymous. You're only you're only paying attention to the woman. But if you track your family lines to the father, then it becomes very important to control the women's sex lives. Basically, you have to have the daughters be virgins. The women need to be monogamous to their wives, but the husbands do not. So this is the big shift. And this is what you see the Hebrew prophets arguing about and being all critical of the women for being totally promiscuous. Well, it's because basically they're not a monogamous. They have marriages, but they're not as hung up on monogamy as we are because they don't track the family lines to the fathers. And that's a social transition that happens. The Greeks celebrate it in their mythology. And the other part of it is, is the marital structure. The difference of what they call a bina marriage um, or matrilocal versus patrilocal. Basically, does the woman go live with the man's family or does the man go live with the woman's family? In the matriarchal cultures, the women stayed put. The women didn't just tend the hearth and home, they owned the hearth and home. And so when a marriage happened, the man goes and lives with the woman's family and um, and the women stay put with their mother and their grandma and their sisters and their aunties and they own the wealth. They The, the family lines, the inheritances all go to the daughters. And, um, and you see it in royalty in older eras past that the royal lines track to the daughters um, thank you thank you if you don't mind i want to kind of just pivot now because a couple of things one of the great points i've learned from you about your book and from your book is um well that just that just flew out of my head but it's also <laughs> um it's also what you lately wanted to talk about the uh crucifixion of Jesus, I'm really intrigued. I grew like you said earlier. I grew up reading the Bible, going to church as a as a kid, and then in my twenties, I was I was just reading so many other things that I just had to walk away from it as being literally true. And it was very scary. It was traumatic, you know, because as a kid you grow up. But I I owe my happiness to my spiritual imagination. I owe my spiritual imagination to the four gospels. The four books that tell the stories of Jesus on this earth. So uh, you are really talking to an eager uh, conversation partner here, Ed. Talk to me about. Uh, All right, yeah, I wish I could have shown yeah. my slide deck. So I've been working yeah. on this for a while, and it's um, um, it's not my, it's not a new idea. Basically, I'm I'm defending spoon theory. I'm defending the idea that Jesus was survived the crucifixion, and that the Bible, the the text, the 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 texts of the Gospels are literally true. Right, you said that. Wait, you said you said that very quickly. Swoon theory is what you said. Swoon theory, yeah, it's a very old idea. It's simply the idea that Jesus survived. Make sure I can understand what you're saying, please. <laughs> um, so, okay. um, yeah, the idea, and, and not that he survived for long, just survived even for a few days or two weeks. The Bible says he ascended to heaven after forty days. So, 
he lived for a month, right? Long enough to be seen, long enough to talk, but then, but then he died. My argument right, is so, that so, yeah. and so I have um. This is not a new idea, but the the idea is that I'm linking it both. I mentioned a that this tracks with what the, what the Muslims say about Jesus because he's a holy man, and so in the Quran it says he didn't die, uh, but also. And then I track it to science because basically I'm making the argument that the, that it's all about the, the my argument is that the women, my title of my piece is Mother, Son, and the Rising God. The women were not simply witnesses to the resurrection, they were responsible for it. So it's all about centering the whole story on the three Marys, Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, and the third Mary, whose name is a little bit confused. Um and that they were the only people that were around Jesus at the crucifixion. Everybody recognizes this. The male disciples are nowhere to be found. Um, and so what happens on the cross? Well, Jesus is given this wine vinegar immediately before he expires. And no one really, people don't tend to pay a lot of attention to the wine vinegar. Well, my argument is that that wine vinegar is a sedative, that they're knocking him out. They're making him appear dead, like Romeo and Juliet, just like Romeo and Juliet. When she takes a potion that makes her appear dead, same argument. They're, that the women are giving Jesus a potion, making him appear dead. They're then taking him down off the cross after just a couple hours which is unusual because crucifixions are normally you're left on there for days or until your body rots off the cross. It's very clear in the text, Pontius Pilate is surprised. They're asking for his body after a couple hours. He says, he's already dead. Okay, you can have him. Well, and then they take him and they bring spices and ointments and, you know, linens. Well, like they're, those are medicines. They're bandaging his wounds. They're laying him down and they're placing him undisturbed under heavy sedation, knocked unconscious for two days and I identify what the drugs are, and um, so we can test this. this. is a theory we can test. The science is a testable theory, um, and that it tracks the text perfectly, and that it's the women, and then it's the women who come back on it's that Friday afternoon, and then he, they come and get him Sunday morning, so it's not even, it's only like a day and a half. It's probably only 36 hours that he's in the tomb. The women come with more spices, i.e. more medicines. So I want you to, if you hear, when you see the words wine vinegar, I want you to think mystery potion. And when you hear the words... Spices, I want you to think medicines. Um, and so then the women revive him. And then it, and it's all about Mary Magdalene. Everyone's clear. All the texts are clear on this. And the texts are very clear on the wine vinegar. It's, it's a detail that's in three of the Gospels. Um, and so then, and then I'm making the argument, though, that this is really directly tied, comes out of the mystery religions of Isis and the mother goddess religions of the ancient world. And that the in the Roman era of this time, the mysteries of Isis out of Egypt was the most popular religion. There's no way you could say that there's no connection because like that was the most popular religion in the Roman Empire. And everything about the resurrection is taken directly from Egypt. Um, the, all the iconography of Isis and of uh, Jesus and the Mother Mary is all directly from Isis and Horus. And I can show you all this imagery. And so my argument is that for somebody who's coming out of the pagan mysteries, this would be a totally normative way to explain the story. That basically my argument tracks the Gospels, tracks the Quran, tracks science, tracks the ISIS mysteries, and tracks common sense because I'm telling a story that is perfectly, mm -hmm. perfectly normal. Um, okay, now, now it's a, it's a very very uh, compelling interpretation of the events. What have you seen, and what can you tell me by way of evidence that supports it? Well, all I can say is you know this is a, I can't prove it beyond that this is literature, right? We have no evidence. The only evidence I'm working with is the Gospels, right? So, and, and no one can prove the Gospels are, I mean, scholars, you know, accept that he was a real person. I accept that Jesus was a real person, that he was publicly executed. That is generally accepted scholarship. Oh. 
then, Beyond then that, fine. no then, one has proof. All I can prove is that it's literature, right? But that the stories were written this way for a reason. Well, let's let's dig in a little deeper because I'm aware of the context of the other stories that you just alluded to. You just you just said this was normative because of other stories that were around at the time, right? Similar mm -hmm. stories predated. They were in the culture. They were in those societies, right? Sure. Right. Exactly. It reminds yeah. me of. It reminds me of the movie Zeitgeist from 2005. Have you seen that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's in that vein. Zeitgeist doesn't get all the stuff right in terms of the claims they make, but it's in that vein where there's an intense amount of religious syncretization going on in the Roman Empire. They're very open to religion, right? And people also need to recognize that Christianity is fundamentally a, a, a Romanized Judaism that was written after the Roman-Jewish War. All the Gospels are written after the Roman-Jewish War to make a, a an acceptable form of Judaism for the Roman Empire. I mean, it's 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 intentional. I don't think the Ro the Christianity is a persecuted religion. I think it's the Jews were persecuted because the Jews didn't get along with the Romans at all. But Christianity becomes a form, a way for people to take monotheism and blend it with the paganism. And it's like a 50-50 blend. And so everything about the resurrection and the Virgin Mary, it's all lifted directly out of these very common and very popular religions of the day. Indeed, and, and not only also, is well, it not not only not only uh, once I did not only Romanized Judaism, but it's Romanized um, Egyptian mythologies, and also as you've said, Greek that have the stories of the virgin birth, that have the stories of twelve followers, that have miracles, I believe, with bread and fishes, that have uh, the wine into water and a, story, at the wedding, and, is yeah, yeah, and a death of three days three-day death and then a resurrection. It's really, really uh, amazing to, to see that context. So inside that, the uh, hypothesis of the medicines that knocked him out, preserved him, and then he was allowed to, you know, heal or recover, or maybe they administered something to wake him up. I don't know. We can, we can spec, we don't have to speculate right. outside of, out of the text, but uh, I don't want to interrupt everything well, you want to tell me about this theory. I want to say one thing. I don't. I'm not claiming this is proof per se, right? I'm not saying this is proof in, of like a that you take to court. What I'm saying, what I want to do is invite the conversation and recognize that for early Christianity was diverse for centuries, and Gnostics and there was a widely different, wildly diverse Christianity for 300 years before Orthodox Christianity locks itself in and crushes yeah. everybody that didn't didn't believe. So for yeah. a wide variety of people who called themselves Christians in the early centuries. Totally believe in, in stuff like I'm describing. And, and and the Gnostics in particular totally embrace the Divine Mother. And this is the conversation I want to have. It's like as we move through this, we're going through a reformation, whether we like it or not, in culture. Like the old religions are breaking down and we need to like reimagine them so that we can get back to some moral grounding because we're we've lost it, right? We've lost our moral mm -hmm. founding in, in, in our in the Western society. We need to um renegotiate it, right? Um and the and in the Stop. context of this conversation, it returns to what we talked about before, that the nature of reality has something to do with the spiritual and the mystical, and it has something to do with appreciating nature. It has something to do with what we experience when we are outside and paying attention to what causes what, what comes first, and also what we feel, and then also the dreams and the visions that humans are susceptible to, whether or not they are enhanced by any uh, intoxicants that we might take. Talk about the nature of reality and the, and the um, and if you can, weave it into how the goddess worship was 
so much reflective of an appreciation of the earth as a spirit that gave birth to us and sustains us? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it took me a really long time to make sense of like how God could have a wife. And and I, I, I was able to piece it together after a while, basically from two sources. One was Native American traditions of earth, mother, sky, father. And then I was like, duh, it's earth mother who was the wife of God. Um, and that there was a divorce there. That seemed like pretty obvious once I realized it. But the second one that was more theological was from the Hindus. Because the Hindus also have a lot of goddesses, and they also repeat these same motifs. And so for the Hindus, I learned that the way mother-father fits together is that the father is immaterial. Like, you can't touch God. I think Whatever your belief in God is, I think we all, everybody agrees, God's not something you can touch. You can't put your arms around him. You can't, like, wrap it around in any in any conceptual way or any material way. But the mother is the material world. The mother is the matter. It's where we get the word matter. Magna mater was the Roman Sibylle name for the great the great mother. So that that word, the mother is the material world. And that's how the God, mother and father can fit together without contradiction. Um, and then you go back to indigenous people and see that the earth is one big living web of life, like one big biological entity. Um, and that we are microorganisms within a larger macroorganism, just as we have tens of thousands of microorganisms inside of our bodies, inside of our cells doing their thing, you know, that we only just learned recently through modern science. We learned we have a million microorganisms inside of our own bodies. So does that make us one creature or a million creatures? I don't know. Like, and so why doesn't that apply to the earth itself? That then you have to make the leap that the earth has consciousness, which gets you into the metaphysical and Again, back to Eastern traditions, which I have come to believe in, that speak to just God as universal consciousness, um, and that you know the kingdom of heaven is within, and that the spirit permeates everything, and that our consciousness is derived from the divine, from that thing we call God, um, and so that spark of the divine is within us all. But it's the mother by which it becomes made flesh. So she is the doorway. Goddesses are always worshipped in doorways and on pathways. Um, because like the vagina is the limb is is the tunnel by which the spirit is made flesh and brought forth into this world. And so it's this blending of material and immaterial. And that's why the mother is always close at hand. And so you'd worship the Virgin Mary because she intercedes on your behalf to God. She's close at hand. The mother is close. You can touch her. The father is far away. That's why you pray to the mother and she takes your message to the father. That, um, that's kind of the that's this kind of the scenario. And then you see that that repeats over and over and over again in culture after culture. Are you uh, bringing, you You know, you contacted me about the presentation you gave. Do you want to talk about that as a place people could go see the playback of that? Um, it'll be on my Substack. Um, you know, as soon as I post it today or tomorrow. And then I had a, I, I did a debate with a Christian apologist preacher last night on another channel called History Valley, a YouTube channel called History Valley with Jacob Berman. Um, I go on his channel a lot to talk about this stuff. And last night we had this fun uh, live uh debate with uh jonathan sheffield who's a, a you know a youtube apologist um so it was a lot of fun and uh and i thought i thought it went well i think my presentation i've got a nice slide deck um that'll be on my Substack, and i'm trying to push it out because i want to use it as a again i'm not trying to prove anything i want to have a conversation starter and say like you can read the stories this way if you choose to it's a valid way to read the story if you choose to read it that way yeah and i think it i think it invites skeptics who who uh are stuck at the question of was jesus even a historical figure 
you know, the swoon theory uh, supports or at least makes it comfortable for one to imagine the plausibility of, oh, that's how it could have happened. That's a lot, you know, that's just a lot more uh, palatable, so to speak. Edward yeah, Dodge but- is with me. Ah, let me reintroduce you. Mention your book, A History of the Goddess. Your Substack, Edward Dodge, that Substack. And now here is important information from today's news talk, TNT. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. There are, without question, two Americas, and we are most assuredly living in a divided nation. But the primary line of division isn't what most people would think that it is. It's not political, it's not Democrat versus Republican, red versus blue, left versus right. Neither is it economic, racial, or religious. No, the primary line of division in the nation today is between citizens and non-citizens. And whereas you'd think that it would be citizens that would receive the bulk of the rights and privileges of citizenship, the exact opposite is true. It's the people here illegally that have the most freedom. Case in point, going to get on an airplane. If you're a citizen, you have to show photo ID, and be subjected to either an x-ray machine or a pat-down or both. Your bags are x-rayed and potentially given enhanced screening which can delay your flight. But if you're an illegal, all you have to do is show the paper that says you're here illegally. Doesn't have to be a photo ID. In fact, you can request the TSA not take your photo and they will comply. What's wrong with this picture? Well, what's wrong with this picture is everything that's wrong with Biden's America. And we can't get President Trump back behind the desk at 1600 fast enough. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT. My character Shazam knows all about growing up in a family full of teenage superheroes. They're bold. Where's everyone going? To fight crime. Okay. Adventurous. Shazam! There's never a dull moment. And no matter what happens, they'll always have your back. All they need is a place to grow and be themselves. And the best part is, you don't have to be a superhero to adopt a teen. Learn more about adopting a teen from foster care. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. You can't imagine the reward. This is World Stage with Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. With me is Ed Dodge, author of A History of the Goddess from the Ice Age to the Bible. And we alluded through this conversation, Ed, to upheavals and transformations. And and you're coming, what I hear when you describe it is um, a great acceptance of the naturalness of evolution of, let's just say, Technology. I think things are speeding up tremendously in a very, very dangerous, destabilizing way. Primarily how technology is being used by the elites, the 1%, the oligarchs, who want to wrap us up in a really, really tyrannical surveillance and control and dictates about every facet of our life. Do you want to flesh out and summarize any points of that we had been making before talking about this or... Or can you share your thoughts uh, about what I just described? Well, I, I think you're right. I think that I think we do have a technocratic elite that do want to use technology. You see, um, you know, that are very enamored of 
what's going on in China with a absolute, you know, technology lockdown. I was an IT guy for long, for a long time, and I recognized the capacity for totalitarianism when when the internet was first invented, first came along at the turn of the century. And I remember talking with folks about it, and, and now and now it's here. Now we're at that moment where you know we're losing our privacy. We're we're the automobiles which used to be this great source of freedom. I can I remember, I'll never forget, you know, it was so integral as a teenager getting my, you know, getting a car and being a young person and the freedom it gave you to like to have road trips or go on adventures or or be bad, you know, <laughs> like that's where we were private and we were like smoking weed or whatever, like hanging out with girls or whatever you could do in the car. Like it was your source of freedom and it was like the place where you could get away from your parents and and um but now the modern digital car is a total surveillance thing. Like it's cameras inside and they're, um, and it's a complete lockdown and our cell phones are a complete surveillance state. So it's, it is a brave new world and it is destabilizing Bruce and we don't know what's coming. And the lack of spirituality and the lack of a, of a firm moral first principles is what mm. I find very scary about our leadership. They don't claim any first principles except for their own power. Like what first principles are they adhering to? Do they claim any first principles? They don't mm. that I've ever heard of. There's no morality or it's all broken down. Like, cause our morality used to come from, I mean, I think firmly that morality is a social construct. Like, you know, and it obviously changes, you know, morality shifts from society to society and over time. And, but we organize it. The, the mechanism by which we organize it is in our religions. And so when our old religions are breaking down because the old structures aren't working as we transit through history and reformations happen over time, you know, periodically throughout history. And so we're in a new one now. Um, those moral structures are breaking down, but they haven't been replaced with a new moral structure yet. And so we're flying blind. <laughs> we're flying blind with no morality at all. And um, it, it makes for a very, uh, as you say, da dangerous and destabilizing. And it Wait. is. And as you were saying that, it brought everything we've talked about so far into apl applicability as a f in the family and for the raising of children. couple of points. The technology you just described, it's tough for me, you know, who lived many decades in the last century and saw the internet as something, you know, new in my adulthood and even the use of smartphones as late in my adulthood. It's hard for me to remember. There are a couple of generations of young people who've grown up with smartphones and cell phones and this kind of connection on social media, and they are destroyed by it. I think it's it's a fair conclusion based on you know actual scientific studies and uh, and surveys that the despair, the alienation, the suicidal ideation, and the suicide attempts and the actual suicide accomplishments have risen exponentially since just 30 years ago. And there are many studies that say it really tracks the uh, use of these devices in, in a large part, maybe not causatively, I'm, I would bet causatively, but certainly as a, as a, as a, as a factor. And that ties right into the lack of religion, as you say, which might more broadly be accepted by folks if they thought it's the lack of spirituality to the extent of being connected. If we're not connected to our siblings and our parents because we're being raised by phones and our parents have to work two jobs, if we're lucky enough to have parents, if we're lucky enough to have one parent, there is a crisis of 
millions who are abandoned young and who are fodder for the manipulation and the brainwashing and the fear-mongering to uh, live lives of unbelievable despair. So there's something about, I want your thoughts about the, the crisis or the remedies or the, the help for young people, what they're enduring, and also what can caring adults personally, individually, or as any kind of institutions, communities, do to help young people along these lines? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've got some thoughts on this. I, I, I'm a parent. I have, I have three kids. Um, so, um, and there is, there isn't, it's not completely ruinous for kids. Let's just start with that. Like, it's not, I mean, Mike. It's not what? It's not what? Not not everything is completely ruinous for children. Like, it's not ruinous. all okay. doom and gloom no. everywhere. You know, people are True. still, like, living their lives and getting along. And, yes, they're adapting and things are weird and things are different. Um, but, you know, not all the kids are crashing and burning. Let's, my kids are still Thank okay. Thank you. Okay? No, um, I take that. Thank not, you. It's not a total meltdown everywhere. That said, there is an epidemic of loneliness across all ages. I certainly feel it in my own life. And it definitely tracks with having all this technology and also just how everything's become so expensive. You know, it's expensive mm. to go out and get a burger and a couple beers. You're going to spend 40, 50 bucks, you know, like yeah. you can't just like go down to the corner bar and just like have spend $10 and get a dinner, you know? Um, and then, you know, the, we, we invest in this home entertainment system. So you want to use it and it's very comfortable to sit at home and watch your Netflix. So there is an epidemic of loneliness and it does also track with the breakdown of religion because traditionally that's how communities were formed. They, they, the first thing you'd build in your town was the chapel or the, you know, the sacred space for people to go to. And, and now that we're not going to churches anymore, those communities are broken down. And I, and like, I didn't raise my kids in church and I don't regret it because I didn't want to raise my daughters with all that sort of purity culture stuff. But at the same time, I think it's a net loss. I think it was absolutely a net loss to raise my kids in a purely secular, no faith foundation at all. And like not really teaching them to pray properly. I think I do. I think, again, my kids have turned out fine, but I, I do think on that component, it was a net loss. And I think I could have done better as a parent, but I don't know how I would have raised them either because all the, we tried to go to church and none of it ever really stuck. Um, so it is, it's remedies. I don't know, Bruce, we got, <laughs> we guys got to keep pushing through and, and, uh, you know, just, you know, just be open about what, what, what works and what's good and, and what's true and what's honest and, and, um, and try to avoid the bad stuff. But like, yeah, it's a chaotic time. I don't have any easy remedies. I really don't survive. Well, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, going back to your book and the, and the, the swoon theory that you brought up. I don't remember if in your book you've got the swoon theory. Is this something new to your discovery? Yeah, no, no, it's in the book. It's in the book. Yeah. Uh, okay. A little bit refined what I wrote in on this presentation, but it's basically taken right out of the book. It's in the the third section mm -hmm. is about is New Testament, and I talk about you know uh, Virgin Mary a lot and stuff, and the and and the traditions because the story goes on. I mean, you can take the goddess stuff right at, all the way to the modern day. You can you can track mm -hmm. the continuity. But specifically, the Virgin Mary, those traditions go to Ephesus, which at the time was the home of the Temple of Artemis, where Paul visits in the at one point in the in the New Testament, and he has a big, you know, he has to be rescued from the mob that wants to kill him. Well, the Temple of Artemis at that time period was the biggest, grandest, most famous temple in the entire ancient world, in the entire Mediterranean. It was the biggest, most famous. It was a huge, massively important pilgrimage location. Um, it was a very, very famous and important temple, and. Um, and the Christians would eventually burn it 
and sack it, you know, in the fourth century and they would burn it to the ground, a mob of uh, angry, you know, drunken Christians. And that's where by tradition, the Virgin Mary went with, uh, with, with John, the disciple John. And that's where all the Virgin Mary in the Catholic church, that's where the Virgin Mary, where they built the first church, the Virgin Mary. And like, that's like the actual, the actual history of Virgin Mary worship begins in the town of Ephesus. And, but, at, but in history, that was like just continuity of mother goddess worship that went back a thousand years or more started by the Amazons and stuff. I mean, the history in Ephesus was really profound. Um, the, the sociological, anthropological and historical, uh, worlds that open up when someone gets your book, a history of the goddess from the ice age to the Bible are empowering Ed because they confront, let's say a Christian, you know, with the challenge of, wow, you know, if this isn't the literal received word of God, and I no longer can just accept it because my church says so, my priest says so, my pastor says so. It, it, it's the opportunity to soul search and do a gut check and give a person the opportunity to evaluate all, the whole message and the whole story, either from the, uh, the Jewish point of view and from the Christian point of view, what do I, it, it might come down to, and I'm not imposing this on everyone who reads your book, what do I want to believe? What makes the most sense? What resonates to me in all that now I've learned from Ed's book about the history of those times? What feels right as a human being, this new picture of human evolution where there were cultures that not only equally regarded and revered women, but actually prioritized the, the majesty of their importance. I just find it so humanizing and so empowering and so uh, logical, I'm even going to say. What kind of feedback are you getting from your book? And and then I, I do want to ask you, like, you called it a debate last night, the conversation. First, the feedback to your book. Why, besides what I'm saying, have you heard people like your book? So it's, it's very interesting who likes the book. Academics don't like it because I'm not tracking the academic line. So I get generally get stymied when I want to talk to them. And then um, anybody with traditional Orthodox beliefs does not want to hear what I have to say either. If They're generally not interested. And it ends up being a very uncomfortable conversation. But the people that are open to it, where I've gotten really good feedback, and I've gotten very consistently good feedback, granted it's a niche audience, but it's people that have, who have deconstructed from orthodoxy, but haven't abandoned spirituality. They haven't become atheists and they're open-minded. And I've been talking to the black community lately, and that's been very eye-opening because they are very hungry for new ideas. And they're, they're deeply spiritual. Like the black community in America is maybe the most openly spiritual community, um, whether they're Orthodox Christians or or any number of other things, and so, but but they have a a real like for obvious reasons a real hunger and a desire for to upset the apple cart of orthodoxy and come in with something new because obviously the orthodox position in the last couple of years couple of centuries has not worked in their favor. Um, so the black community has been very been very welcoming to what I've been saying, and uh, that's been nice. And so anyone that's open minded to a new a new spiritual conversation, but Enlightenment thinkers who for whom they take it as a presupposition that all mysticism and spirituality is BS and needs to be th thrown out as just superstition. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to have these conversations at all. They're not open to it. 
Um, so it's been a very interesting feedback. It's been really interesting feedback. And for me, I, I'm not like a religious leader or anything. I'm not trying to start anything following me, but I mm. do want to have these conversations. And I would like to be part of, you know, newer communities that want to reopen these ideas. I think the powerful thing about this reframing the resurrection story around the women is to say that, A, this is perfectly within the me, the, the framework of early Christianity. When we everybody recognized that early Christianity was diverse, incredibly diverse, and 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 like things were hotly contested. Yeah. When you accept that idea, then you can accept that some people would have read the story the way I'm reading it, and and it opens up just a way to like just just reexamine the story again and say maybe there is a role for the divine mother. Maybe the Trinity really should be mother, father, son, which is what I think, and not father, son, and Holy Ghost. I think it should be mother, father, son, and then we can like it gives us a chance to. For those of us in the West that are raised in Christianity, because I know for my part, I read, you know, Hindu stuff and I can't really get past the language or the alienness of the cultures. It, after a while, I can digest the philosophy, but it takes mm. a long time and a lot of work because the the language is so foreign, right? Just the words mm. themselves take a long time to digest. But when you're reframing familiar mythologies, it's much, I think, easier to digest and an easier conversation to have. Um and say, hey, like maybe there is a role for the divine mother. Maybe we do need to put ecology first. Maybe we do want to have an ecological civilization. We need to recognize that, you know, mother nature counts and mother nature is important. And that this is our oldest, these are some of our oldest and most beautiful traditions of humanity. And they were thrown out, but maybe we need to revisit it and look what was good in there and 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 see that there's still some value there, which is what I, what which is what I discovered. And I was so Stunned yeah. by the things I learned that I wanted to share them, but um, last you know, it's been a process. Last year, I emailed you, or we emailed back and forth. I tried to make uh, Naomi Wolf aware of you and your work. Did you ever get in touch with her? Did she ever get in touch with you? No, I never got in touch with her. She went through a hospitalization issue, and she is like pretty high profile. So I don't think I imagine she gets bombarded with. Um, and I do think it was particularly bad timing when we, when we emailed her. So I'd be happy to talk to her and, um, um, or Matt Arrett, I'd be happy to talk to him. He, he's been doing a lot of stuff on, uh, some of these old mystery religions lately. So I'd like to, uh, I know you've been in touch with him. I, I was actually going to mention that. Follow up, follow up with me along those lines in any way that you want. We're down to our last minute or two, Ed, what would you recap? What would you add that we haven't covered yet? Just that, um, I love talking to you, Bruce, because like you're aware of how chaotic the world is, and and you're open-minded to, um, you know, new solutions, and 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 the, and a recognition that what's happening, you know, our leadership at the moment is not is not getting it done, and, and we and we need to collectively have these conversations and start to figure out what does work and what we want to work towards. Um, even so. even at a secular secular level, you know, yeah. your work blows can blow people's minds open. So that they start using their imagination and and realize, wow, I can't just believe what I'm told. You know, like President Truman said, the only thing new in the world is the history you don't know. <laughs> but I resonate so much because without a spiritual imagination or spiritual possibilities, we're we are screwed exponentially. And then you, you do any work on yourself you know, with, with goals or positive thinking or anything like that, or just working with optimism, and you one does start to handle tangible uh, transformations in greater, 
you know, things. EdwardDodge.substack is where you can follow Ed Dodge. His book is A History of the Goddess. And your other site is LostGoddess.io. Thank you so much for your time. This is today's News Talk, TNT.